how's Lent going for you? Been gone for a few days. You're not, not slipping up on your, your practices, right? You're staying faithful to those things that you decided to do as, as ways of sort of growing in your faith. Are you preparing for the Lord's passion, his death and resurrection? We're going to be celebrating it before you know. It feels like this Lent is going a little faster for me at least, maybe for you as well. But there's so many distractions. Daylight savings time. The days are getting longer. Remember, Lent is, is the, actually the old English word for length because as we move towards Easter, move towards the Passion Week, the crucifixion of our Lord and his resurrection, the days get longer and longer. And with that comes spring flowers and wedding planning and all sorts of things that are going on, birth announcements, lots to distract us. But the Lord wants to continue to call us to prepare ourselves Rather, to allow him to prepare our hearts to receive all that he has for us in this season of Easter. Are we desiring to grow in maturity to the fullness of Christ? Well, our gospel lesson this morning from John 6 gives us another opportunity to see ways that we are easily tempted to, to, to misunderstand or fail to have faith in the face of all that surrounds us, and it definitely is true for the disciples, and Philip particularly as he gets singled out here. But for all of us, it's easy to misunderstand discipleship. Oftentimes we confuse the what of God's will for us with the how. I'll explain in just a second. Two things just to remind you, just remember the, the story you just heard read that it's this account, the very beginning of John 6, where, where Jesus has all these people that are following him because he's, he's healed a man that's been lame for 38 years, and they are overwhelmed with sort of this miraculous sign that Jesus has done, and so they're following after him, and, and Jesus comes, and he begins to talk, and in fact, he says some really controversial things. He, he equates himself to God the Father in chapter 5, and he says, you look to Moses, Moses spoke about me. It was me that Moses was writing about. Those are pretty provocative things for Jesus to say, but he's drawing himself, people to himself. Notice in the passage that it refers to that the, the feast of Passover is at hand. Now, Jesus is up in Galilee, and he's got this incredible crowd that's following him. There may have been as many as 20,000 people that were fed in this miracle that we're about to talk about a little bit. 20,000 people. Those are 20,000 people that aren't down in Jerusalem celebrating the Feast of the Passover. Now, the Feast of the Passover, remember, it goes back to Exodus. It goes back to Moses and his leadership and leading the people out of Egypt, how God miraculously performs all those plagues. And, and finally, Pharaoh has to relent and allows the people to come out of bondage and out of 400 years of oppression. It's sort of like the 4th of July for the people of Israel. And yet they're not down in Jerusalem, they're up in Galilee with Jesus because they're beginning to sense that he is more important than even their feasts. John 1, John the Baptist is walking around. John the gospel writer says that John the Baptist looks up with Andrew and a couple other disciples and says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And there are three feasts of, of Passover that are mentioned in John's gospel. And all three are meant to be like breadcrumbs for us to lead us 
along as we begin to realize that Jesus is, in fact, the Passover lamb. He's the one who's been sacrificed. But it's not just a memory about, about way back in Egypt when God used the Passover lamb. Remember, the blood is applied to the door face, and, and so the, the angel of death passes over those homes, and therefore they're spared death of the firstborn. But, but every Passover feast, a lamb was killed, and that sacrificial meal was represented. So yearly at Passover, the families are all reminded of this lamb and how he's used to recognize the fact that God has spared them from death. Jesus is the lamb of God that was sacrificed for the sins of the world. And they're beginning to get that sense of it. So I want to make sure you remember that as you're reading this and understanding that that's very important. It's a very important detail that John puts in the story. Secondly, just remember that for Moses, Moses is like the ideal prophet. He's the ultimate, frankly, he's the ultimate king of Israel, although David obviously becomes the greatest king in terms of a, an empire. But, but Moses is the ideal leader. He, he walks with God. He, he's humble before God. He is a friend of God. And, and, and I'm reading right now, in my daily readings, I'm reading through the, through the book of um, Numbers. And boy, everybody that tries to challenge Moses, it does not go well for them. Because Moses is God's man. Moses had brought the children all the way through the, uh, through the desert and the wilderness time. And remember that moment where the people begin to cry out, they want to go home. Go back to Egypt, back to oppression, you know. Oh, please let us go back and work, our, you know, without any time off and go back into slavery, go back to what's simple or at least what's familiar. Isn't that always our tendency? Moses is the one whom God brings forth from the heavens, the manna, this bread of heaven that comes down and feeds them. Coleander seed is what we think it is. But it, whatever it is, it, it, it's, it's this food, this, this substance, this bread of life that comes down and feeds the people in the wilderness until they come to the promised land. And then it miraculously stops. Jesus will build upon that idea of the manna, the bread that comes from heaven, and he will contrast himself with Moses and he will remind them that he is not just the leader, the prophet, but in fact he is the bread of heaven, the bread of life. And that's what the Last part of chapter 6 will be about. It'll be all about Jesus explaining that unless you eat his flesh, which becomes bread, you cannot have eternal life. And so this is where Jesus is going. But in our lectionary this time, we don't get that whole story. All we get is the very first 15 verses. We won't talk about all the other part of John 6 until, until this summer. So I'll remind you of that when we get there. But, but what are we to do with these first 15 verses? Having kind of set that up. Moses, the manna, Jesus, who's the Passover lamb. Well, I want you to note that this miracle is the only miracle of Jesus that is recorded in all four Gospels. Oftentimes, John's writings are very different from the, it's what we call the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But here, this miracle appears in all four. It's how important it is. This feeding of the 5,000 men plus women and children that are not counted for us. It's an opportunity for Jesus to test the disciples 
and what they will do at this incredible moment. Jesus looks up and sees this crowd that has come and with him, and Mark tells us in his account of this miracle that Jesus has compassion on them because they're like sheep without a shepherd. They're just wandering helplessly. And you probably shouldn't think of the word pastor when you think of the shepherd in this sense, but a leader, uh, almost like a king, a, a tribal leader, somebody to give them direction. If you've ever been in an organization that had inept leadership or a lack of leadership, you know how frustrating it can be and how counterproductive it is. And Jesus looks up and sees them as, as like sheep without a shepherd, no leadership. And he has compassion for them. And so he turns to Philip because Philip is the local boy. He's the, he's the guy from the area. This is where Philip's from. And he says, Philip, where can we buy bread for all these people? Now, Jesus asks a simple question. Where can we buy bread? Philip immediately goes from where to how. Where can we buy bread? How can we? Lord, there's no way we could pay. 200 shekels wouldn't buy enough bread for these people just to have a little bit of a, a, little bit of a happy meal. I mean, there's, no, there's, just no, there's just no way we could do that. Uh, you know, the, the amount is basically 200 days, almost more than half of a year of a, of a common laborer's salary would take just to, to give these people a little, you know, chicken McNugget. You know, kind of just a really small amount of food. Jesus is asking, where can we buy bread? And Philip wants to begin to try to figure out how possibly Jesus could do it. And you see the problem. Oftentimes, the Lord tells us what he wants us to do. But rather than saying, okay, Lord, we'll do it. Now tell us how we're going to do it. We begin to go, but Lord, that's impossible. The Lord isn't asking us to figure out how he'll accomplish it. He's just telling us what needs to be accomplished and asking us to have the faith in him that he'll provide. Well, poor Philip, he gets to be forever remembered for his failure to, to answer the question correctly. What it would have been like if Philip had said, Lord, you, you know, you know where we can get bread from, Right? Or even better yet, Lord, you alone can provide bread for this many people. The opportunity was to turn to the Lord and say, Lord, only you can provide this. You know the how, and I recognize the need. Now show us, Lord. But he doesn't. He, he counts the money, and he counts the people, and he concludes that it can't be done Send them away, some of the other gospels record. You know, let, send these people away. Let, let them fend for themselves because there's no way that we can possibly provide food for them not recognizing in whose presence he's found himself. Andrew comes along with a small boy and oftentimes, and I think I've preached it this way, oftentimes we say, well, look at good Andrew. Philip's the bad student, right? <laughs> Wrong answer, Philip, Thanks. Andrew, what do you think? Well, Lord, here's a little boy with some barley fish and some... I don't think necessarily that we're supposed to conclude from this passage that Andrew's the good disciple and Philip's the bad disciple, okay? I'm just going to tell you that. I think more importantly, what 
what we're to see is that, is that in this poor boy's lunchbox is enough for Jesus to feed at least 5,000 and maybe up to 20,000 people. What we're told with these barley loaves, these little barley loaves and these, these pickled fish, basically, is that it's nothing. It's, a, it's minuscule. It's very we're, we're talking really small, probably more like, like pieces of, of cornbread, you know, in, a, in kind of a, in a long form than, than we are talking about uh, loaves of bread. He doesn't have four, four or five loaves of bread here. He's, he's got little barley loaves. I'm sure, Leanne, there's plenty of, of, of fiber in barley loaves. <laughs> But it's not near as good as whole wheat. Leanne's been teaching us on, uh, on healthy nutrition and good stewardship of our bodies. And I've had barley. It's not great. I don't like it as much as I like flour. Uh, that's why I'm sure it's got lots of fiber in it. So. And, uh, but but it's, this, it's this tiny little offering. But in it, we're to see that, and this poor boy's lunch, that even that is enough for the Lord to multiply and make enough to feed people to the point that we're told that as the disciples ask the people to sit down and they begin to spread out the, this, the barley bread and share it, that there's enough for everybody to have as much as they want and still 12 baskets full to be collected afterwards. It's, it's like the wine miracle in chapter two. It's, it's this recognition that the, this, is, this is the Lord. And by the way, the disciples were present when Jesus performed the miracle of the wine, and yet they haven't learned that there's no limit to what this Lord can do if we simply ask and obey. It's not about, some people say, well, this is about, you know, people who are stingy, you know, Jesus gets them to open up their, you know, they've actually got the food and the miracles that people shared their food. I, I don't think that's the case. If, if so, Jesus is pretty dense because if he, he can't recognize that the people have the food and they're just playing dumb, then, then he's not a, not a very smart teacher, right? And that's not Jesus. He he's, has compassion on them because he sees the need and he performs the miracle. He knows the how. Ours is but to obey the what. The crowd, we're told, wants to make Jesus king. They, they want to, they, they're, they're looking for a Messiah. They're looking for a new Moses. They're looking for somebody who will intervene for them. Another reason probably they're not in Jerusalem is because Jerusalem is a constant reminder of Roman oppression, of the fact that they are underneath Rome's hand and they are held down and suppressed in many ways. Jesus hasn't come to set them free from Roman oppression. He's come to set them free from sin and death. And so he retreats to the mountains. See, I brought it all back. See, this is why I went to the mountains. That's what Jesus does. A little different, but Jesus goes to the mountain. He goes to the retreat because he wants to stand against the temptation that they might forcibly create, uh, be, you know, force him to somehow be their political or military leader. 5,000 men would be a sizable rebellion to rise up and to challenge Rome. Jesus will have no part of it. He, he sees in it that this is the same temptation as in the, as in the desert with, with Satan, where Satan tries to give him a triumph, a glory that's apart from the suffering and death of the cross. 
Jesus will have no part of it. Now, I'm sympathetic with these crowds. I wouldn't want to be under Roman oppression. It's hard enough to pay your taxes come the 15th of April or deal with all that comes with restrictions on our freedoms as Americans, right? You know, imagine if you were under Rome. You complain about mask. <laughs> Talk about, about carrying a soldier's duffel bag for a mile or two or being conscripted whenever they felt the need to raise up an army. But Jesus uses this opportunity to test the people, to test his disciples. Will you trust me even when you can't see what I'm doing, when you lack understanding, even in the face of great loss or confusion? Will you trust me? Just to give you a a, a quick preview of what comes at the end of chapter 6, Jesus' controversial words about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, it drives the crowd away. (laughs) It's a crowd killer. And at the end of chapter 6, it's only the disciples, only the faithful that are left behind. Jesus says, will you trust me in the things you won't understand and the face of great loss or when I don't lift up the things that are oppressing you or holding you down, will you trust me even in those circumstances? Furthermore, I think the application is that we have to ask the question, will we trust Jesus to provide for us? Even when we can't see where the provision is coming from, when we don't know the how. Can we speak to the Lord, Lord, you know how you're going to accomplish this. Lord, you alone can provide what we need. Or will we shrink back? If you find yourself in a place of limiting God, like Philip, saying there's no way, Lord, that anything good can come from this, then that is the place, especially in Lent, that you fall on your knees and confess your lack of faith. We are so prone, I am so prone, I'll just use the first person to say, Lord, there's no way, I can't do that. I can't do that. And the Lord continually blows my mind. Yes, with me, you can. We got out of our car on Sunday afternoon to start walking on this hike, and, and by the way, March is colder than November, okay? I don't know if you knew that or not. In the mountains, March is colder than November. I was hiking in a jacket and a long sleeve shirt, and I was cold. And I thought, Lord, what have I done? And why is my brother dumb enough to follow me, right? What are we doing? But we can accomplish so much more than we think we can with the Lord. He says what we're to do. We trust him for how we're to accomplish it. Do you believe that the 
God can use your abilities, that he can work through you to accomplish the things he wants to accomplish? Or will you be like Philip and say, how, Lord? When I was a young Christian, I learned Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you're saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That was what Justin read, 8 and 9. I never was taught to memorize verse 10, but later on in my discipleship, I realized that, that having understood Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, that it's all by grace, that I need to remember verse 10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he has already provided for us, or something along that lines. He's already prepared for us to accomplish. There is somebody that you're to witness to of the goodness of God and the truth of Jesus Christ that no one else can speak to. The shuttle driver at our part of the Appalachian Trail is uh, a guy named Bubba. And I hesitate to share with Bubba because he's, he's, one, of my, he's one of my guys, you know. He's just one of those, the, you, you grow a relationship. When you're dependent upon somebody to pick you up from a, a wilderness spot, he becomes very important in your life. Bubba goes about 350. If he goes, you know, anything, he's about 350. Big old country boy. Car is in not very good condition, but he gets you there and he gets you back. And Bubba confessed that he's suffering with a medical issue and we're praying for him. And I pray that there will be opportunity for me to share more about Christ with him. That's somebody that I uniquely can witness to, but there's people that you uniquely can witness to. If the Lord says what to do, don't get paralyzed with the how. Just say, yes, Lord, you can do this. Provide the way. One of the best prayers you can pray is, Lord, I'm ready to talk about you. You start the conversation and see what he'll do. I've had people wake up on a plane and go, so what do you do for a living? And it's like, where, where did that come from? Don't limit what the Lord can do. There's some of you that God's calling to lead a Bible study or minister to a person in a particular need that only you uniquely can do or to speak words of encouragement into someone's life. Don't get caught up on the how. Just respond by faith to the what God is speaking. And lastly, just to remind us all, we have to come before the Lord before we can know the what. And if anything that Lent is meant to do, it's to create space in our lives to hear the Lord. I think oftentimes we move on as if we know what God has for us without ever stopping to say, Lord, what do you have for me? Philip and the other disciples had no thought in their mind that their job was going to be to distribute bread for maybe 20,000 people that day. But by listening to the Lord and following his instructions, they accomplished that. Spend time allowing the Lord to show you the what. And he'll provide the how. In the name of the Father, 
and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.